This is a Rook Media Series, The Contemporary History of Iran, Part 15. Hi there, and welcome to the Contemporary History of Iran, a series from Rook Media. This is part 15, the 1999 student uprising. I'm Gian Gomeshi. Our aim with this series is to explore the events, personalities, and issues that have shaped modern Iran. We want to do this as much as possible through a non-traditional lens, through snapshots of change and using alternative voices or angles. This series is mostly in English and will feature a new episode posted every Thursday across our Rook Media platforms. We will post subtitled excerpts with Farsi Zirnavis on our YouTube and Instagram sites. We are coming to you on rookmedia.com. It is there that you can link to all of our platforms, and we invite you to check out parts 1 through 14 of this series that are already posted. To become a sponsor or a patron of Rook Media, please contact us through our website. The Contemporary History of Iran is brought to you in part by Yazdani Law Group. YLG is one of the largest Iranian-Canadian immigration law firms. Their mission, rooted in the leadership of founder Afshin Yazdani, is built on continuously striving to innovate and introduce new immigration pathways for their clients. Afshin began his career as a lawyer and law professor in Iran, and his company has now made it their goal to provide the best, simplest, least risky, and most inexpensive way to immigrate to Canada. YLG has an impressive track record, hundreds of applications from Iran successfully processed every year. They are at YLGPC on Instagram. That is Yazdani Law Group. All right, let's get started. Here now is the Contemporary History of Iran, Part 15. Well, in looking at the contemporary history of Iran each week in this series, we want to not only focus on historical events that reach back to, say, the constitutional revolution of the early 20th century, but more recent moments as well, the kind that linger in the first-hand memories of Iranians around the world. On this episode, an event from just over two decades ago that shook Iran, rattling a nascent reform movement and displaying and reconfirming the unbounded use of repression by the leaders of the Islamic Republic. In July of 1999, after the censuring and closing of a reformist-oriented newspaper, university students beginning at the University of Tehran rose up against the regime with a unity, ideological solidarity, and size that had not been seen in any kind of protest since the 1979 revolution. The student uprising has been called Iran's Tiananmen Square, but the immediate backlash by the state was ferocious, violent, and horrific. For a few days, Tehran was turned into a battlefield and sympathetic youth protests sprung up across the country. It was all over in less than a week, but the challenge to the regime was historic, as was the heartbreak of youth who had seen reformist President Khatami and others as true agents of change before they turned on the students as well. To speak to this pivotal moment in recent Iranian history, the context, the aftermath, and the legacy of the 1999 protests, I'm joined by someone who was there on the ground during those violent days, both as a student and as a reporter. Mohammad Manzarpour is a veteran journalist who is based in Washington, D.C., in the last two decades, he's been the bureau chief for the BBC Persian Service, BBC Persian's first Middle East correspondent, as well as later being the executive editor of VOA Persian. Mohammed is now the general manager of Persis Media and the director of the Persis News Agency. 
He's also a contributing editor with Rook Media. Muhammad was a university student at the time of the 1999 uprising and was in the dorms that formed the epicenter of the revolt. Muhammad himself was jailed and beaten amid the Islamic Republic crackdown on students and protesters that ensued. And Muhammad Manzapur joins me from Washington, D.C. today. Hello, sir. Hello, Gian. It's, it's wonderful to be with you and your loyal listeners. Thank you for doing this. I, I, it's not often when we're looking at history that we have someone uh, who's firsthand, this firsthand in terms of uh, uh, something that occurred. But um, this is, of course, just over two decades ago. I want to get into the specifics of the student revolt of 1999 and its relevance. But I feel like I need to start off by noting that this is the most recent focus we've had in the contemporary history series. Yet, I'm guessing Iran's Tiananmen Square is not something that's currently taught in schools in Iran or memorialized by the present government? That is correct. In fact, the present government and previous governments have tried very hard to eradicate any signs of the uprising, which was uh, quelled quite uh, viciously by the IRGC and their plain-clothed mobs. And they've successfully uh, managed to quell political dissent in the universities since then. So it is not promoted in any sense of the word. And yet, uh, just talking to some of the members of the Rook team and their and their friends, who uh, a couple of whom were, you know, either not born or, or, or three years old or something when this uprising happened, everyone knows about it, even young people in Iran today. I, I guess because Iranians in the diaspora and Iranian media in the diaspora has kept the memory of it alive. Yes, it has become a landmark in Iranian contemporary history. It was the first open challenge to the entirety of the regime uh, and the most political one. Uh, we have had protests, very bloody protests, much more bloodier than those of the student dormitory riots since then. But, I mean, some of it has been in protest to the election rigging. It was conducted by reformists who supported the entirety of the regime, but they were opposed to Khamenei's intervention in the elections. But uh, during the student uprising, basically, uh, the nature of the regime was challenged and it was challenged extensively and received widely in the community in across Tehran is spread like wildfire and also across the country. Yeah, I want to get into all the details of that. By, by the way, I mean, you were there, you were involved, you were jailed, we'll get into that. But does it seem particularly far off to you today? Or does it seem like yesterday? Um, for me, it's a very vivid memory because it was obviously my first experience of covering a very, uh, I would say, volatile event. It, everything at the time was unprecedented. It had never been experienced in Iranian history after the revolution before. For all of us, it was a first-time experience. The implications have affected all of our lives, people who were involved, people who were in any way associated. It is not only a, a landmark event in Iranian history, it's also, it's also a turning point for many Iranians who were involved in that, many students who were involved in that during the uprising. Mohammed, give us the broader context to what gave rise to uh, student dissent breaking out in July of 1999. Uh, first of all, there, there was an expectation that reform was in the air. Uh, after the election of President Mohammad Khatami in 1997. Can you, can you speak to that? We'll do a full episode on this, I, I imagine, at some point in this history series. But what did Khatami represent for youth in the late 1990s? Khatami represented a hope for change and for uh, quelling the ever-expanding reach of the Vilayat Farih, or the supreme jurisprudence, uh, the rule of the supreme leader, Ayatollah Khamenei. Khatami was uh, the candidate that Ayatollah Khamenei didn't want elected. And that's why the society, Iranian middle classes, even lower classes, and and some in the affluent part of the society 
as a means of saying no to Khamenei, they supported Khatami. And as a student, as a very young student, I was responsible for the election headquarters of Khatami in the east of Tehran, in Lorzade Street, which was one of the, uh, let's say, uh, less affluent regions of Tehran. And we enjoyed huge public support. It was a time of hope and uh, for the first time that uh, people felt that they could make a change with their votes. Right. Uh, but obviously that didn't, didn't uh, last long. I, in particular, in terms of the, its relevance uh, to today's episode, I, I guess it's germane that those who were responsible, among those responsible for electing Khatami, would be youth, would be students, right? I mean, he was very popular with students who by 1997 into, into the late 1990s still believed reform was possible. Absolutely. Uh, the way that the um, election campaign for Mr. Khatami was conducted, there were organized parties like reformist parties, like the executives of construction party, which were like the new right of the Iranian political spectrum. Uh, there were Mujahideen uh, Anglaba Islami or the Mujahideen of the uh, Islamic Revolution. They were the the uh, traditional left wing of uh, the reform movement. And then there were a headquarters set up by the student movement, one of which was my headquarter. And we were the, um, I would say, we were the most popular part of the campaign for, uh, for Mr. Khatami. We were, of course, uh, very um, limited in our resources in terms of money and, uh, you know, flyers and everything, which we, we relied on uh, the executives of uh, construction party for uh, those material that we needed. But in terms of the ratio, the huge ratio of independent, basically, election headquarters set, set up for Mohammad Khatami at the time were student organized offices, right. which were in, you know, private establishments. For example, our headquarter was in a textile store, which was set, a, set alight by the paramilitary um, mobilization force of um, IRGC. They set fire to the office, but we survived. And so there was huge hope. There was, uh, I think it was the pivotal point of hope in contemporary Iranian history. In, in terms of the precipitant, uh, the direct precipitant for the uprising of, of 1999, um, uh, which is, uh, which by the way, is, is called Hijdaatir, uh, or, or what, yes, what do you, yes. like, yeah. Uh, it, it, it is the, it's the closing, uh, it's the repression of this reformist newspaper, Salom. Uh, I, I want to get into that, but again, to provide some context, after Khatami is elected, at least for a brief period, there's a new press freedom in Iran, right? Uh, that is very true. That was the most uh, visible sign of change in Iran. Suddenly, uh, all pa newspaper kiosks were full of new uh, newspapers, which were very radical, very... Uh, open in their criticism of, uh, you know, different aspects of uh, governance in Iran. Many topics which were considered taboo before then were being openly discussed. And um, people were buying, I mean, Iranians nowadays don't read much newspapers, but at the time, people were buying three or four different newspapers uh, to quell their thirst for information in that uh, never-repeated part of post-revolution history where information became uh, readily available. What can you tell us about this reformist newspaper called Salam? What, what was its mission? Uh, Salam uh, actually belonged to uh, Musavi Khoeini, uh, who was um, a left-wing Iranian political activist, and uh, he personally belonged to the, let's say, uh, leftist Islamist part of uh, the regime, in a sense. 
if we have to go back to the history of the uh, revolution to see where these people came from. At the beginning of the revolution, at the very beginning, after the government, the interim government of Mehdi Bazargan was pushed out, uh, the Islamist leftists became the power brokers in the Islamic Republic. Uh, they were actually quite totalitarian in their approach. They were very anti-America, anti-capitalism, and uh, they were the first repressors um, who emerged after the revolution. And they were despised by most Iranians, in a sense. Uh, but during the first and especially the second term of Ayatollah Rafsanjani uh, as the president, things started to change. First of all, uh, the right wing, uh, through the leadership of uh, Ali Khamenei, they began to push out the leftists from uh, all sorts of uh, bottlenecks that they held at the time. And uh, they were kind of pushed out of the regime, in a sense. And they became critical of uh, Ayatollah Ali Khamenei and his uh, you know, henchmen. And that's what uh, made Salam significant. I can get into exactly why Salam was shut down and, um, you know, all of that, if uh, if you would like me to. Well, or would I you was like going to say, I mean, well, yeah, yeah, of course, that's, we, I, I want to hear, if you can do it briefly, what, what happens in early July of 1999 with respect to Salam newspaper? Well, um, Two events happened. One was the serial killings of intellectuals in Iran. A number of very prominent intellectuals, writers, and critics of the regime were targeted in their homes, in the street. They were kidnapped and their bodies were found later uh, in different parts of the city. And um, uh, Daryusha and Parvane Fuhar, two uh, nationalist uh, leaders, were dismembered in their homes. And uh, this was seen at the time as a re reaction by um, the powers uh, invested in Ayatollah Khamenei to quell the reformist movement. They felt that they had to uh, send a message to intellectuals that the, the game hasn't changed and they are in control. Now, at the time, a proposal was uh, sent to the parliament by the uh, majority conservative members of the fifth uh, parliament or the fifth majlis, which um, set out very stringent and very, um, uh, very restrictive uh, rules for freedom of press. This was an attempt by the regime to quell the um, the new flourishing of independent papers in Iran. And now there is a connection between these two. And that is uh, Saide Emami. Saide Emami was a very senior uh, intelligence operative in the Iranian intelligence services who was the mastermind behind the serial killings of the intellectuals. Salam on the 6th of July of 1999, printed um, a headline saying that Saide Emami was the person behind the new draft law, which right. is being presented to the government right. to quell press freedoms. And on the 7th of July, Salam was shut down by the authorities. And that's what uh, caused the uprising in the initial uprising in the uh, Tehran University but, dormitory. But, but, you know, it's still on the face of it. It's still intriguing to me. I mean, government suppression of media was certainly not a new thing under the Islamic Republic. Uh, and censorship, you know, went back decades in Iran. Well, why was this event a particular trigger for a revolt? Because they were trying to turn back the clock, which they did. Uh, they wanted to turn back the clock to before um, Mohammad Khatami's election. Because after his election, as I said, there was a flourishing of independent papers who were not being censored as they were uh, censored before. There was a new um, sense of freedom, whether it wasn't actually like legislative freedom, but it, in, in action, quite organically, uh, people were writing 
and expressing thoughts and ideas which were deemed totally taboo before. And what they wanted to do with this new law was to turn back the clock and basically pressure the new papers into submission and into uh, censorship and self-censorship. Mm-hmm. And that's why, you know, there was this revolt in by the students. So on July 8th, 1999, there is a student demonstration to protest the closing of Salam newspaper. Now, as you alluded to earlier, we've seen dozens of mass demonstrations, some violent, in the years since then against this regime in Iran. But at that time, how this is a couple of decades into the Islamic Republic's rule, how rare was this kind of large public collective expression of dissent against the leaders of the Islamic Republic? It was unprecedented. Uh, The only presidents that we had before that, there was a local riot in Islam Shah, which is a very poor neighborhood of East Tehran, far East Tehran. Uh, It was after a a soccer match uh, that led to a protest a couple of years before uh, the dormitory riots. That was probably the first ever public uh, protest against the regime where people from Islam Shah came to Tehran and set fire to Ayatollah Khomeini's um, massive billboards and Ayatollah Khomeini's billboards. And they, um, but it wasn't very much political. It was a spontaneous uprising against the regime. Uh, It wasn't political. It wasn't, um, uh, you know, intellectual in a sense. Uh, It was very grassroots and from a very poor neighborhood in Tehran. But uh, the the events that unfolded in the universities were extremely political. Uh, So it was unprecedented before then. What was the, at least on that day, on, on, on July 8th, when the demonstrations begin, what was the goal of the demonstrators? Uh, They wanted the lifting of the ban of Salam newspaper. When the news broke in Tehran University dormitory in Amirabad, uh, students uh, held a protest on the campus and then they marched out of Amirabad, chanting slogans demanding the immediate republication of Salam newspaper. You know, there's, uh, I read a rec- an account of this moment by um, someone else who was there, uh, like you, uh, in fact, one of the student organizers, um, who says that in that moment, there, there had been some kind of old regulation that had been observed back through the Pahlavi years and into the first two decades of the Islamic Republic that forbade armed forces from setting foot on the university campus in Tehran and that some of the student organizers had thought that this would kind of inoculate them or, you know, um, uh, keep give them safe haven in terms of demonstrating. Can, can, do, you, do you know about this old regulation? Can you speak to it? Uh, yes, it was a uh, it wasn't a regulation as such, but it was more a precedence that uh, universities were considered sanctuary and uniformed police and intelligence forces were uh, not allowed to enter universities uh, before the student riots. They avoided entering universities before the student uh, uprising. And on the night of uh, the 8th of July, uh, the first wave of attack which came uh, against the dormitory were plain clothes individuals who were organized under paramilitary group called uh, Ansar Hezbollah. Right. Uh, they were kind of like the Basij and they had free reign and they were vicious thugs who basically attacked any gathering, any anyone who was opposed to Ayatollah Khamenei. So, so there is this forceful crackdown by the regime. Um, can can you give us some? And I know that you end up visiting the dorm the next day. I mean, you're a you're a journalist for a student publication at the time, so you saw this firsthand. What what can you tell us about the nature of this crackdown? Uh, well, the plainclothes thugs basically entered the grounds of uh, Tehran University dormitory in Amirabad uh, in the early hours of the morning before dawn. 
and they had ransacked the entire door. Most of the rooms were raided, the doors were broken down. Uh, many students were, uh, had sustained uh, very severe injuries. The, the, the assailants were armed with um, batons and knives and all sorts of potentially lethal weapons. And one person uh, was shot. And uh, that is a very, a very, very interesting case and very peculiar case, which I want to discuss. But Ezzat Ibrahim Nejat, who was actually visiting the dormitory at the time, uh, was shot and died on the premises. Um, the peculiarity about Ezzat Ibrahim Nejat's assailant is that he was shot with a uh, AK-47 rifle uh, bullet. And all the eyewitnesses said that there were no machine guns uh, in the possession of the assailants. But we knew from different reports that uh, one member of Ansar Hezbollah had a side weapon which was altered to basically be able to sustain AK-47 bullets. And he was um, Mas'ud Dehnamaki, a very prominent member of the Ansar Hezbollah who later became a, a director in the Islamic Republic and has made uh, countless uh, worthless movies afterwards. <laughs> well, I, I, I mean, anything I read or hear about this crackdown, it, it, it sounds uh, um, horrific. Obviously, the intent uh, by the regime, and e even if they're uh, figuring that they're getting away with this through using thugs, etc., rather than um, uh, official security, uh, um, the intent is to scare the, the students out of um, any more kind of uh, protests, it has the opposite effect, at least in the immediate. And this massive and violent response of the regime ends up creating more protests and the protests spreading, in fact, uh, across Iran. Explain what happens in the next day or two after this crackdown at Tehran University. Immediately after the attack, the students actually uh, fought off the assailants and they ultimately left the premises. And in the immediate aftermath, the students set up a barricade uh, at the junction of Amirabad. Students from all across the city came to Tehran dormitory to support uh, the students who were attacked the night before. And that's when I went to the dormitory and there were thousands of students who were either manning the barricades uh, or had organized themselves into different committees. There were, you know, student-appointed security people. There were student-appointed medical uh, teams who were attending the injured. And there was a political center or management in the student movement who were basically managing the scene. And soon after, I mean, there were clashes all across Tehran, all across Tehran, at every major university. And then that spread to every major town center, every major square in Tehran. Uh, and it just went wild. I mean, the uh, descriptions of this moment in relatively recent Iranian history uh, say that for days, for example, to, to quote one um, newspaper piece I saw, Tehran was turned into a battlefield. Uh, do you agree with that or is that hyperbole? Is that an overstatement? No, it was. It was absolutely turned into a battlefield. Um, sympathetic people to the students had uh, lit fires in different Tehran squares and they had kind of occupied the squares. The police were standing back and then there were the repressive forces who used to attack with, uh, uh, and I have a, a vivid memory of one of those attacks which I was in, uh, they, they would ride in with their uh, motorbikes armed with chains and long knives and stuff like that and just hit everyone, anyone who was in the streets. And there were these running battles in different parts of Tehran between the students and uh, their supporters and these mobs on motorbikes who were attacking anyone who was on the street. And obviously the, uh, the epicenter was the barricade at Amirabad, which everybody was heading to to support the students.
this is not confined to Tehran only. Within a, a day or two, these protests are spreading uh, to other cities like Tabriz, like Mashhad, like uh, Shiraz. Uh, t- tell me about the historical significance of the protests spreading like that. I would say it was probably the first time that um, we had solidarity among different uh, universities um, across the country for a common cause. And all of those protests which transpired uh, received a lot of public support at the same time. And uh, the general public was very sympathetic towards the student cause. Uh, although there were some reservations as well, which uh, at uh, at a later uh, point in the interview I will definitely mention, uh, but that was the first time, and that's when the regime realized that the universities could become the catalyst for a uh, for a major upheaval in the country, and they did all in their power ever since to quell any sort of dissent in universities. Today, unfortunately, the Iranian universities are. Uh, are the most barren grounds for political uh, activity and they're under the most um, draconian um, methods of suppression. And there is, uh, I mean, the atmosphere that we had back uh, then uh, has never uh, transpired again. Given that it was so unprecedented, so massive and spreading so quickly, this, this uprising, um, it, it's almost shocking or perhaps telling that it's over within three or four days, five days, let's say, um, in total. Uh, was that just brute force? I mean, how, how was the regime able to contain this so quickly? Um, well, it was resorting to, to military intervention that ultimately changed the balance in Amirabad. Um, Ayatollah Khamenei came out on, um, uh, it was two days after uh, the demonstrations, and he made a very, in my opinion, very sentimental plea to his followers and he said this is where he said i I, you you tore my picture and yes yes he said yes i've torn my picture and i have bought a very damaged body referring to the fact that uh, he survived an assassination many years back and uh, all his followers were shown to be crying and you know uh, it was a ridiculous uh, show of um, love for the supreme leader by the repressive forces. Um, Immediately after his speech, which was televised, on the 9th of the um, uh, 21st of Tyr, it would be... July 12th or something? 11th? Yeah, Yeah. July 12th, I think. July 12th, we were in... I was based in... uh, Amiriyeh Junction. Basically, the uh, Amirabad is a three-way junction. Towards the east, uh, there were Ansar Hezbollah based uh, behind their own barricades. Towards the west were the students behind their barricades. And then there was another street which came from the east of the junction. It was towards... 11 p.m. that uh, IRGC brought in massive trucks fully loaded with armed-to-the-teeth IRGC personnel uh, with machine guns hanging from their necks and they were chanting Allahu Akbar and uh, stuff like that. And at that time, uh, it was obvious that they were going to quash the demonstration at whatever cost. They came and started shooting in the air. Uh, the students who were behind the barricades went back into the campus and Sarah Hezbollah followed. There was another attack on the dormitory and then hundreds of people were arrested, both inside the dormitory and in the adjacent uh, roads which led to Amirabad and all across the city. That's when Amirabad fell. 
But that wasn't the end of the demonstrations because demonstrations were still happening at uh, Tehran University campus, uh, Shahid Beheshti University, Amir Kabir University, and all the different universities were still very, very volatile. But Amir Abad fell on that night. Just before I get in, let me just go back to that that sentimental speech that you talked about by Khamenei. Didn't he, in that speech, distance himself somehow from the crackdown? Was that to sort of try to exonerate the regime from the, the violence that had taken place? Yes, it was the first time that we saw Khamenei scared. Uh, he said that there, um, what had transpired in Tehran dormitory uh, was something that had to be investigated and he could understand the students who were affected by that and who had suffered from it. Uh, but uh, the students should not allow the enemies of the regime of the state uh, to uh, take advantage of their legitimate concerns. Uh, that's what he said, basically. There's a giant counter-protest on July 14th from stated sp- supporters of Khamenei. Um, this gets a lot of oxygen where people say, well, then there was a bunch of people in the streets supporting Khamenei. What, what are we to make of that? Ever since the beginning of the revolution, they utilized, the, they set up a huge network for bringing in masses for their, uh, their state-sponsored events. Uh, for example, for many years, many, many years, many decades, uh, the Tehran uh, University grounds were, were occupied by Khamenei and his dogs as a place to hold the uh, Friday prayers. And every Friday, they, I would say, bust in hundreds of people from different locations outside the city, uh, even uh, from long distances, to fill in the grounds whenever there was uh, namaz e or Friday prayers. So uh, the Islamic Republic is very much in the um, uh, in the uh, self-promotion business in, in terms of keeping up appearances. And on that day, uh, there are hundreds, hundreds of pic- uh, pictures uh, that show that without doubt more than more than 5,000 buses were brought into the city from different parts of the country uh, to basically stage those demonstrations because it was a, a matter of a matter of image for the regime to show that they were still popular. So I, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about your own personal um, plight in this uh, in these those crazy days, uh, those five days, you end up being picked up off the street and then jailed. Uh, and it sounds like an, a terribly harrowing experience. Can, can you explain what happened to you and why you were picked up on the street? Uh, yes. Um, um, obviously, I mean, I was covering the event for Peke Azadi bi-weekly student publication at the time. And uh, we ran a huge headline and uh, uh, center spread piece, which was titled Tehran University Cried, uh, referring to the uh, attack on the university. So uh, the security forces were aware of basically what I was writing for the paper. And then there were events which transpired during the siege on uh, the dormitory, which I later learned that were reported to the security forces. Uh, one incident was on the first day that I went to the dormitory, it was the, uh, the day after the initial attack, and uh, I was just basically making notes and stuff for, for the paper. And then I, uh, I noticed that among the uh, student-appointed security people, there was a guy who I knew from former... Um, altercations uh, who was a member of the uh, local besiege uh, or the IRGC mobilization force in my neighborhood in uh, Darwaz-e-Shemiran. And uh, I knew that he wasn't a student. I knew he was a besiege uh, agent. So I went to one of the student leaders at the time, very prominent person, and I said, look, uh, this chap over there with a security 
band on his arm uh, is actually a Basiji uh, agent. And uh, that person told me, who are you talking about? I don't know which one you're talking about. And he asked me to go and stand next to him and raise my hand so that he could um, recognize the person I was referring to. I know this is totally counter to any uh, standard procedure for reporters in any any event like this. But at the time, you know, I was very sympathetic to the student movement. So right. I did this uh, rather risky and idiotic act and I went and stood next to the guy and raised my hands. Um, still, he was not um, removed from his post by the person I was reporting him to. But um, uh, the day after that, um, actually, actually, it was two days after that I was driving in Tehran and in, um, in one of the major uh, squares in Tehran, Meidane Haftetir, a white pecan uh, pulled in front of, cut me off. So are the protests uh, still happening at this point? Uh, no, the official protests were over. Okay. Uh, a white pecan cut across my uh, line of uh, driving, the line I was driving in. They stopped my vehicle and they pulled me out of the car and they shoved me in the back seat. They pulled a bag, a black bag over my head and pushed my head down uh, behind the seat. And I was taken to an unknown location, which I later found out was um, a Komite base in, uh, in a part of Tehran. Uh, for the first day and a half, n nobody questioned me. I was uh, handcuffed uh, on a metal chair, and my, my cuffs were behind my back, behind the back of the seat. And uh, on different intervals, people would come in who I didn't know who they were, and they would just beat me up. No questions asked at all. Just beating, uh, you know, um, for, for uh, one night and the, and the half of the day after. Would they say anything about why they were? Nothing, nothing. They didn't even say why they'd picked you up. They just nope. were beating you. Yeah, nothing, oh. no question at all. And then I was taken to Eshatabad, which was another security headquarters. I was there for one night. Uh, I was in this massive cell, uh, huge cell, and I was all alone. Uh, it was very dirty and totally dark. I remember I hadn't been to the, to the gents for about two days, and I knocked on the door to ask if I could go to, uh, you know, the bathroom. To, yeah, to the bathroom, and some guy came behind the door and said, no, just piss in your boots. And uh, anyway, uh, I didn't do that, of course, but uh, I was there, and then there were, I was taken to Evin Prison, and I was um, uh, taken to uh, solitary confinement. I was in solitary confinement for four and a half months. It was during my solitary confinement that I was interrogated. And then I, I was informed that uh, one of my uh, accusations was endangering the, the life of a security officer, which was what I had done at the time by pointing him out to, you know, uh, a student leader at the time. You were in solitary confinement for four and a half months? Yes, yes. yes. Oh, my God. Oh, I mean, how? Oh, and that's in Evin, right? Yes, in Evin. F yeah. First of all, you you're you must have been well aware of Evin. I mean, you you must have been terrified. What what can you tell us about those four and a half months? Actually, Evin was much better than uh, you know the previous place that I was held for. Uh, you know, those two nights, in a sense that there wasn't any beatings. Uh, in Evin. It was just psychological warfare, but the psychological warfare was really bad. The, um, the solitary confinement was a room which was about like uh, two meters or two and a half meters in, in one and a half meter, and there was a very uh, dirty kind of um, like, um, uh, I wouldn't say a rug, something like uh, carpet on the floor, which was horrid, horrid, really, really dirty. Uh, there was a something like a toilet on the side of the room and a 
small sink and um, there was a projector, uh, a very, very bright projector at the top of the door, the metal door, which was on 24 seven. So you couldn't really realize it was day or night at any time. Uh, And um, then my father was arrested and uh, many other people were arrested. I mean, it was a time of arrest. Um, And uh, there was a lot of sounds which we heard which were quite disturbing. I mean, every morning at about 3 or 4 a.m., we heard the sounds of as if someone, uh, as if people were being executed. We heard like firing squads and then the single shots which appeared as if some some people were executed and then somebody was shooting them in the head. Um, Later I learned that this was all rubbish and we were just hearing it through the speakers in the cells and there were other you know sounds most of the torture was white torture in a sense that we were tortured by the sound in the cells. Um, Did you at any point think you're just not going to survive this? Yes, everybody thought that they were not going to survive it. Yes. Hmm. Yes, nobody nobody thought that we were going to survive this. Nobody. I, I mean, I should say that there's that there were people who were killed in the uprisings. Uh, you've talked about one at the dormitories, but, but also then thereafter in the protests that happened in the streets. Uh, there were, uh, as you've talked about, um, countless numbers of people who were put in jail some of whom end up in jail for years, right? Yes, yes. Many people remained in jail for um, for many years. Uh, I know one person who's still in jail. From uh, the student protests, from 1999. Yes, 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 yes. There's, there's a, a law that gets passed in the aftermath of the uprising by the regime called the Thought Crime Law. I mean, it's like a Orwellian name. What what can you tell us about this law? Um, it was kind of defined as a preemptive act for people, for intellectuals who had thoughts of sedition. <laughs> so they were saying that um, uh, harboring thoughts of sedition in their terminology was in fact a crime this is uh, this is actually the, the the thought behind the serial killings as well it was the fact that you know people i mean some of the people who were killed had done nothing more than translate the uh, human rights charter of the united nations and that guy was uh taken off the streets and strangled and uh, then his body was thrown in the street and discovered the next day. So uh, they basically said that if you harbor thoughts which are considered to be sedacious in nature, that was in itself a crime. It sounds like carte blanche to pick anybody up that they they think is not on side, right? Yes, yes, absolutely. It's it's like the Khmer Rouge or something. It's quite remarkable. Uh, You know... we started this conversation talking about the the reform movement and the hope that you talked about um, that was embedded in the election of uh, Mohammed Khatami, who becomes president in 1997. Khatami is pivotal here in terms of the lessons of this student uprising because he ends up pretty much turning on the protests and the protesters. Um, what what did that signal in in retrospect from your view of history? Treachery. In my opinion, Khatami betrayed the student movement, and the student movement were instrumental in bringing him to power. He promised investigation into the serial killings, which never transpired. He promised investigation into the attack on uh, the Tehran dormitory and uh, he promised to prosecute people who were involved. That never transpired. In fact, uh, you must remember that the, that the um, bloody repression of the students by the intelligence ministry at the time and uh, the interior ministry at the time were all 
organized by people who were loyal to Khatami, people who are now very opposed to the regime itself, like Chadzadeh. He, at the time, was um, the deputy of interior affairs at the uh, interior ministry. And he was one of the people instrumental in quashing the students' uprising. Uh, Khatami's intelligence minister was one of the reasons, uh, one of the people instrumental in quashing the uprising. Khatami betrayed the student movement completely and utterly. He is totally committed to the principle of Velayat Fadih, to supreme jurisprudence, and at most he's a He's a justifier for the repression. When we look back at this, these 1999 student protests and the historical significance, given all that you've just said, it, it, it occurs to me that there's a, the legacy is, is twofold. Uh, on the one hand, the protest, the uprising, represents the growth and importance of the protest movement in Iran that has certainly, there, there's been protests that have followed and and, and grown in size. Um, uh, so it was unprecedented, is, that, uh, is the word you've used a number of times through this interview, um, and significant in the resistance to the current regime. On the other hand, it sort of plays out like the the confirmation of a fundamental inadequacy of the reform movement um, against this theocratic regime. Uh, what what do you think the legacy of 1999 is? For me, the legacy is open wounds, personally. Uh, I think I'm scarred for life. Um, by the betrayal, uh, the, the defeat. But I think the legacy in the long term, historically, um, is of the universities being the forebearers, the, uh, the students being the, um, uh, the avant-garde of uh, the national struggle against the regime. I think that's something that we should cherish uh, historically. And it is promising uh, in a sense that even under, uh, under such a repressive and brutal regime, um, a bunch of students from all across the country, and remember the Tehran dormitory were students who were not from Tehran. People who were from Tehran went to their parents' houses after the classes. The uh. dormitory were students from all across the country, from the farthest reach of the country. And they, they stood up to a regime that they had no chance in overthrowing, but they did it anyway. And they did it until the last second that they could do it physically. So I think it's something that we should be proud of. But personally, as I said, it's, it just feeds my, um, my hatred of the entire regime um, always and constantly. <laughs> right. which is rather sad I, I guess it's it's yeah it's it's understandable that we can't ask you to be an entirely objective about a, an event that leads you to uh four and a half months in solitary confinement uh, uh i i think anyone listening can appreciate that where have the student organizers and those who were directly involved for the most part i mean um, you don't have to go through an entire list but i mean where have have they all ended up 20 years hence well, um, the student movement was um, systematically dismantled by, uh, in fact, the reformists. They started making divisions among the Office of Fostering Unity. They started to support other factions within the movement. And the people actually who were uh, on the ground during the protests were all imprisoned and um, then deprived of social 
uh, you know, they have this, uh, they have this uh, verdict in the revolutionary court, which deprives you of your social uh, and, uh, and civil rights. So you cannot work, you cannot be employed anywhere, you cannot do anything, you cannot write anywhere. Um, and uh, many of the leaders, uh, some of them left the country, who are now residing in Washington and other places. Uh, some remain in Iran. I know that some of them were exiled to far out reaches of the country. Uh, some of them are still um, active in a sense. Uh, but the Office of, for Fostering Unity basically was dissolved. Then um, there was a gap where uh, the students, fell, the, the universities fell silent for a few years. And then uh, the, uh, a very radical leftist movement called Azadi Barabari or um, Freedom and Equality um, uh, became the dominant uh, kind of political force in uh, Tehran universities, but because it was very uh, I, um, orthodox Marxist, it didn't uh, take root in, in the society as uh, the um, uh, as the previous student bodies had. But that was also suppressed, and people were arrested, and people were prevented from. Uh, continuing their educations. Many, many, many thousands of Iranian students were prevented from studying in PhD or in um, master degrees. Uh, the term starred students was coined by the regime when the university entrance exam, when the results are published, you see these stars uh, next to the name of some students, which means that they cannot they cannot sign on to the university despite the fact that they've got the grades mm. because they're deemed as being part of the political student movement. So uh, the regime has totally invested everything in quelling the universities. In a way, you, you, you said earlier in the beginning of this interview that you think this was 1999, was the most political, was the most significant of the protests that this regime has, has faced, not just before, uh, in terms of what happened before them, but after as well. So you're including the, the Green Movement of 2009 or, or the November protests or the Aubon protests of 2019. You believe 1999 was still more significant. I do, because the reformists basically protested uh, against what they saw as election engineering or the rigging of, of the votes in uh, in favor of uh, Khamenei's candidates. Uh, they were not kind of protesting against the entirety of the regime. But the student movement was very radical in a sense. They wanted structural and fundamental change to the regime. And they had no affinity with the supreme jurisprudence or the supreme leader in any sense. Um, and then Later uh, events that we are witnessing these days and over the past few years, the, 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 the fundamental reason for these protests are either economical, like um, the rise in the price of uh, gas, or they are kind of more fundamental, like uh, demand for water in Khuzestan and in Esfahan. They're not in nature. They do become political, but fundamentally, they're not political in a mm, sense. Mm, I got you. We've spent um, uh, the majority of this uh, conversation looking at 1999 from the perspective uh, of the the students uh, and the student movement. Uh, and given that you were um, part of it, that that makes sense. That that would feed our conversation. With that said. What is the legacy of 1999 for the regime itself? Because it it occurs to me that that it spawned um, quite a list of um, regime style celebrities as well. I, I, didn't um, Hassan Rouhani get, gain prominence in the, from this period of protests? And 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 how does the the regime, if they don't want to celebrate it as Iran's Tiananmen Square, how do they use the, the, the protests of 1999 to buttress their case? Um, the reformists 
um, traded um, their credentials for quelling the student movement to gain uh, trust of Ayatollah Khamenei, and they were rewarded for it. They always said that the students were radical, and we managed to uh, suppress them, we managed to dismantle them, and this shows that the regime has to negotiate with us. They basically saw the student movement as a tool of showing their commitment, their loyalty to the to the regime. And uh, the the regime glorifies uh, the day that uh, the state-sponsored demonstrations took place, uh, rather than the actual incident. They glorify the counter-protest, the counter-state organized protests and um, they uh, they give no um, nobody has ever been held to account for the atrocities which happened uh, in Tehran dormitory uh, and in Tehran and in other cities um, only one conscript police conscript was prosecuted for stealing a razor in the dormitory that was that was uh, the the highest sentence <laughs> issued for the attack. So uh, let me say this: uh, the Iranian regime doesn't want to give any indication that it is willing to prosecute its own henchmen at all. It doesn't want to give any credit to the public opinion. Uh, the the way that Ayatollah Khamenei manages the country is by uh, being totally opposed to what the public wants, uh, as if he has a, um, opinion polls being held on, on any given day, and he t- decides to do exactly the opposite of what the opinion polls tell him. And that's his method. Uh, so, um, Presumably he does have support in the country as well, right? Well, I'm sure he does have support, I mean, um, uh, uh, but I think that support is a very small minority, in my opinion. Um, a final question to you, and I, I appreciate how forthcoming you've been um, through this interview, both on a professional and personal level. Um, when we talk about the, the, the 1999 student uprising in, in Tehran, in Iran, um, this event, Iran's Tiananmen Square, if I were to say, pick one image that comes to mind for you immediately, paint us a picture of one thing that that comes to mind what would it be i have a fond memory well it sounds it sounds funny at the time uh, now but at the time it was horrific um on the second night we were me and the paper uh photographer we were heading towards the dormitory in amirabad we were in my car i had a pecan a cream pecan at uh, Picha Shemiran, uh, there were huge people in the streets and cars couldn't move. So we um, we parked um, on the side of the road to uh, get a sense of what was happening at the time, uh, at that location, and then proceed to Amirabad. Uh, so we got out and um, there were people obviously, you know, burning tires and, uh, you know, chanting against uh, Khamenei and all of that. And suddenly, Ansari Hezbollah attacked with uh, with their motorbikes armed with uh, chains and long knives and all of that. And there was this huge wave of fear among the public. And my photographer said, let's get in the car. So we we ran towards the car, this, this herd of motorbikes with uh, chains and knives and everything was approaching from you know, down the street, and everybody was running away. And I went to my car to open it, and my hand was so shaky, I couldn't find the right key to open my own car. And the photographer was standing on the other side of the car, waiting for me to open the car, and he was swearing at me, <laughs> saying, you know, the, the worst things you can imagine. I said, open the bloody door, you... So and so and so and so and so. Anyway, just... I would say, honestly, like 10 seconds before the horde of motorbikes reached us, I managed to get in the car and open his door and he jumped in the car. And they kind of whizzed 
by our side and they were just hitting people and knocking them down and you know with with no respect to life or anything so that's one of the amazing isn't uh, it uh unprecedented protests an historical event, four months in solitary confinement, and the image that comes to mind is you trying to find the right key. But it's very human. I really appreciate that. Uh, and uh, Mohammed Manzarpour, I, I thank you so much for the time today and for being part of this series. It's always a pleasure. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Mohammed Manzarpour, the general manager of Persis Media and director of the Persis News Agency, He's also a contributing editor with Rook Media. Mohammed Manzarpour joined us from Washington, D.C. today. This is full time for the Rook Media series, The Contemporary History of Iran, Part 15, brought to you with the support of Yazdani Law Group, one of Canada's largest immigration law firms, YLGPC on Instagram. Please check out our regular editions of Rook and all things related at rookmedia.com. It is there that you can find out how to become a patron or sponsor of our program as well, rookmedia.com. Thanks to the amazing team who make this series happen. Talented Anahita, Super Parisaw, Ponta the Artist, Savvy Roham, Ahai Merdad, the fabulous Keon, Captain Reza, and Groovy Shaya. Thank you to all of you out there for supporting us and sharing our content. Please subscribe if you have not done so already. You can find me on Instagram at Giangomeshi. And as ever, Mizun Bashin.